Hey folks, and welcome to episode 227 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are very excited to be having Dr. Drew Johnson coming into town this week to teach our Pentecost term course on a biblical theology of ritual. That course will be running May 10th through 15th, so if you don't already, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages for photos and quotes from the course throughout the week. And I have a link to those pages down there in the show notes for you. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the sin offering in Leviticus. They'll talk about the title of the sin offering and whether that's correct. They'll discuss different aspects of the altar and the blood and the four horns. And finally, they'll touch on how Jesus fulfills the sin offering, how Romans 8 plays into that, and the sin offering's relation to our confessing sin in the new covenant. As always, we want to thank you for tuning into the show and listening. And with that, here is Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart discussing the sin offering. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. And this week, we're resuming our study of the Levitical system of offerings, the so-called sacrificial system. Uh, We've taken a couple weeks off. My schedule got scrambled uh, because my uh, father, uh, my 98-year-old father, was ailing, and I took a quick trip up to Columbus, Ohio, to visit him over the Easter weekend. So that put us off the schedule. So thanks to Alistair for uh, filling in and doing a couple of quick spots to uh, to uh, make sure that we had something to put out over the last two weeks. But we have uh, at least a couple more offerings to cover in the book of Leviticus, and uh, perhaps we'll do a couple additional uh, episodes on this uh, on the uh, system of offering beyond that. In this episode, we're talking about the so-called sin offering. The main uh, description of that is found in Leviticus 4. Uh, That's the initial description of it. Uh, And uh, then there are some uh, additional, there's some additional information about the sin offering at the end of uh, Leviticus 6. Uh, And there are scattered references to the sin offering all the way through Leviticus and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And one one of the initial things to discuss is the translation of the term uh, the Hebrew term is chatat, and it's the same term for sin. So you have the verb sin, chatat, and then the sin offering, which is offered in order to atone for that and to cover that sin, is also called chatat. Uh, but there's been some debate in recent decades about the, uh, the appropriateness of the translation as sin offering. If you call it a sin offering, then it implies that it's intended to atone for a moral wrong, and that it's covering a moral wrong. And uh, as Jacob Milgram, the great Jewish commentator in Leviticus, pointed out, the offering is actually has a, has a wider scope than that. It's not just offered for uh, in, on occasions of moral wrong. Uh, the situations that are described in Leviticus 4 uh, are moral wrongs. They are uh, somebody who sins unintentionally and does something that the Lord has commanded not to be done, so that is a moral wrong. But then as you look at the rest of the Pentateuch, you find that the word chatat, both as a description of a, of a wrong, a violation of some sort, and chatat as a description of the offering. Uh, in both of those cases, it covers situations that are not dealing with moral wrongs. And so, for example, in Numbers 19, a well-known, fairly well-known passage, I think, about the 
the waters of purification from corpse defilement. Uh, that's called the waters of purification, the waters of chatad. Uh, but the situation that it's, uh, that it's addressing is not one of moral wrong. There's nothing morally wrong about touching a dead body. Uh, there's nothing morally wrong about being in the same room as a dead body. But if you touch a dead body, or if you t are in the same room with a dead body, you become defiled, and you have to offer a, uh, you have to go to the uh, place where this special water purification is available, and you have to be cleansed over over a week long period. So that's a case where chatat is being used not to describe moral wrongs, but rather to describe ceremonial defilements, uh, and the chatat is a proper response to that. You have chatat offerings in other cases too. Uh, with uh, in the Day of Atonement, the chatat offering is given as a purification uh, when a woman is being purified from childbirth. She brings a chatat offering in to uh, to uh, cover or to cleanse for her, cleanse her sin. And so Milgram has suggested that uh, the the more appropriate term for this is purification offering, uh, which is at least covers the larger scope that the offering addresses. Uh, it loses some of the moral dimension. It's hard to find a word that covers both the moral and the ceremonial dimensions of the offering. Uh, one one way to one way to get into that or to see the unity of that is to recognize that uh, for the Old Testament system, and I think also for Paul, uh, sin that is moral wrong is a defiling act. You you do something morally wrong and you become unclean. Uh, in the in the Levitical law, you can you can defile the land, and the land becomes polluted, uh, and then it, that needs to be addressed. So the what we think of is uh, maybe a sharp contrast between moral wrong and ceremonial uh, ceremonial defilement. In the Levitical system, those get there's some overlap there, and the purification offering is addressing uh, both the moral side of it and the ceremonial side because those two things are in some in some sense two sides of the same coin for. Uh, for the Old Testament. In the structure of the um, purification offering, we see a sort of hierarchical organization which goes down specific, through specific characters from the high priest down, the high priest, the entire community, the leader of the people, and then common members of the people. Then associated with that are different things that need to be purified. So the anointed priest takes the blood and brings it into the um, the tent and then sprinkles some of, places some of it on the horns of the incense altar whereas for others it will be just on the um, the sacrificial altar would we be correct in seeing in that a connect symbolic connection between the altar and the person who is offering yeah, and I think the the broader connection is that there's a correlation, symbolic correlation between the the tabernacle and the order of the the religious and so social order of Israel. This is a point that uh, Milgram makes again when he talks about the purification offering. Uh, he talks about the tabernacle as Israel's picture of Dorian Gray. He has a, a famous article where I think it exactly that title: Israel's picture in Dorian Gray, the tabernacle. Uh, he's drawing on the uh, Oscar Wilde novel. Uh, Dorian Gray was uh, is the title character of the novel, and he lives a dissolute life. He lives a violent life. He's uh, promiscuous sexually, um, and he gets um, involved in all kinds of uh, all kinds of wickedness. 
and um, he suffers, you know, he gets into a fight and he's, he has bruises or cuts from a knife fight. Uh, he gets syphilis because he's uh, been sleeping with prostitutes. But in the, in the story, the, 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 uh, the conceit of the story is that none of the effects of his life show up on the body of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray looks as young and virile and healthy as, um, as he always did. But he has a painting, a portrait, that's somewhere hidden up, I don't know, in, a, in an attic or something. Uh, and all of the effects of his lifestyle show up on that picture. The cut shows up on the picture and the syphilis, the effects of the syphilis show up on the picture. It doesn't show up on his own body, but it shows up. It registers in the, in the portrait of Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray. And Milgram is drawing a connection between that wild story and the way the tabernacle works. So a... Uh, somebody who is defiled uh, either by um, a moral wrong that does call, cause defilement or by some kind of ceremonial defilement, touching a corpse, childbirth, and so on. That defilement registers on the tabernacle. Uh, and so when the worshiper comes in to be purified from that defilement, the blood, which is the, the cleansing agent of the Old Testament system, is blood. The blood is placed not on the person, but the blood is placed on the uh, what uh, Milgram calls the sancta, the holy things, and particularly, as you said, Alistair, on the altars in the different locations. So the, the altar in the holy place is the target of the purification. If the offerer is a priest, the altar in the courtyard is the target of purification if the altar offerer is a, is a lay person. Uh, and uh, those two are kind of part for whole. They're representing the... the, the zone of activity the priest operates in the holy place and so if he sins or is impure and brings that impurity into the tabernacle precincts that that part of the house the holy place has to be cleansed if a lay person sins he never goes into the holy place and so his uh, his sins don't penetrate as it were into the holy place and it's only the altar of burnt offering the altar of ascension out in the courtyard that needs to be cleansed so it's yeah the altars represent the people that's part of the symbolism but then you have this larger uh, this larger pattern of the tabernacle representing the people and that's why we have the kind of odd situation where um, somebody comes in for cleansing they've been defiled but they never are nothing ever happens to them they offer the offering blood is placed on the altar uh, the animals burned on the altar and nothing is ever nothing is ever uh, sprinkled or poured or rubbed on the person. Um, what's happening is that the tabernacle has to be maintained in order to maintain the Lord's presence there, and the the, the presence of a defiled person in the tabernacle courts uh, will, if that's not taken care of, then uh, the Lord will pack up and leave the tabernacle, and he'll abandon Israel. Reading through the instructions for the um, purification offering, at various points it's compared with some of the other offerings. So, for instance, in verse 31, of um, chapter four or or thirty five, that it's treated in a similar way to that of the peace offering. Many of these offerings do seem very similar in their details. Yet it seems that certain aspects of them are more accented. Um, so, would we be correct in seeing the blood as something that's specific, um, specifically foregrounded within the? Um, the purification offering in a way that it's not 
to the same extent within the Ascension offering, whereas the Ascension offering still has blood rites as part of it. Correct. Yeah, each of the offerings has uh, common elements in common, but then each of the distinct offerings has some um, uh, an expansion or an enhancement of some part of the ritual. And so with the Ascension offering, the part that's enhanced is the burning. The entire animal is burned. Uh, with the peace offering, the part of the rite that is enhanced is the meal because the worshiper is included in the meal. And then with the purification or sin offering, the part that's enhanced is the blood rite. That's in a, um, Partly, you can see that just as a matter of uh, word count and you know, just look at the text. Uh, in Leviticus 1, if you look at the ritual for the ascension offering, uh, there is a part of a verse, verse 5, this is for the offering from the herd. The priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is the doorway of the tent of meeting. So it's two-thirds of one verse that describes the blood rite, and it doesn't tell exactly where the blood is supposed to go. You just know it's supposed to go somewhere on the altar. The idea that it's supposed to go around seems to mean that there's it's sprinkled on every side of the altar, but we don't know exactly what, what part it's put on. Uh, but then when you go to Leviticus 4, beginning in verse 5, this is the purification offering for the priest. The anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, so you know not only he's going to sprinkle it or smear it in some way, but you know which part of his part of his body is making contact with the blood. There's a, there's a detail there that's not found in the ascension offering. So he dips his finger in the blood. He sprinkles some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall offer, uh, also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull, bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of ascension, which is in the doorway of the tent of meeting. So there's a lot more detail about the blood rite uh, it's more elaborate. The blood is actually taken into the holy place, which is never the case with the ascension offering. The blood is sanctified in some way by sprinkling it toward the Ark of the Covenant, which is beyond the veil. It's put on the horns of the altar, which is not the case with the ascension offering. And then the rest of it is poured out at the base. Uh, what seems to be the case with the, the ascension offering and the peace offering is the blood would be sprinkled on the sides. If there's enough blood, then it's going to, you know, maybe the idea is that they're splashed on the sides. You've got a bowl full of blood and you kind of uh, toss it on the sides and then it drips down into the trough at the base. Uh, but in the purification offering, there's blood put on the, on the peak of the altar, the high point of the altar, and then it's uh, deliberately poured out into the base at the bottom. So you're moving, the blood is moving as it were from top down. You're, you're moving from, if you're a priest, you're moving the blood from the high point of the altar inside the holy place. That's the highest peak of an altar in the tabernacle, you move from there all the way to the base of the altar of ascension in the courtyard. That's the lowest part of the altar. Uh, and in place of in case of a layperson, you're moving from top to bottom with the uh, altar of ascensions. So yeah, the blood rite is, is definitely being highlighted here. Um, one, other, one other thought I had, uh, I wanted to highlight something you said, Alistair. Um, the the uh, portions of the animal that are placed on the altar for the purification offering are the same as those placed on the altar for the peace offering. And that connection is explicit. Uh, as you pointed out in verses 31 and 35, also in verse 10, these are the parts removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the, the 
sin offering, purification offering is being linked to the, um, to the peace offering by that reference. I mean, that, that doesn't need to be there. We could, we could figure that out on our own and realize just by reading the text that, well, these portions were removed from the animal and burned in the peace offering. The same portions are burned in the purification offering. But the text highlights the fact that there's this parallel. So I, I think that's bringing, that's bringing those two offerings together. Uh, and I think that is very significant for both of them. Uh, both the peace offering and the purification offering are introduced at Sinai. And the purification offering actually is introduced only after the tabernacle is built. Um, before you have a tabernacle, uh, you don't need a purification offering because the purification offering exists to cleanse the tabernacle. Uh, and before Israel gets to Sinai, they never celebrate peace offerings. Uh, those two things, I think, come together. I believe we discussed this when we talked about Leviticus 3 and the peace offering, that the, the other offerings, the, the new offerings that are introduced at Sinai are kind of oriented to, toward the peace offering. They're ordered to the peace offering. The reason why you offer a purification offering is so that the Lord remains in his house, so he doesn't get disgusted by the defilements of the house. And the reason why you want the Lord in his house is so that you can eat, drink, and rejoice with peace offerings in his presence. So those two, the peace offering is kind of the climax of all the offerings. It's the goal toward which all of them move. And the purification offering exists in order to ensure that a defiled and sinful people can still have table fellowship with Yahweh. There are different ways that the blood is related to the altar. So mentioned the base of the altar, but also the protrusions. Um, it seems to be some distinction that's made between these parts of the altar. Is there some connection with the way that um, you mentioned that bl the blood isn't usually applied to human beings, but yet there are occasions where you do see that in the case of the uh, right for restoring a leper to the community or in the initiation rite for investiture for the priests, they do have um, blood placed upon, are they supposed to be seen as the four horns of the human body, the um, big toe, the um, big thumb and then, or the thumb and on the right hand and then the, the ear, and then presumably in addition to circumcision, are those the four corners of the altar in human form and does that help us to understand what's taking place in the case of the altar and the way that the blood is applied to it yeah i, I do think there's that correlation um the the priest when he's ordained is being turned into a kind of living tabernacle with blood he's uh, he's got um blood on expanded to the four horns of his body every israelite is a priest uh second class because uh, the men at least are pre-second class because they're all circumcised and you know these are um, representing different you could say different powers of human life we have other powers but these are being singled out and or, or not singled out but highlighted in the levitical system uh, the power of hearing the priest's ear is open to the word of the lord his hand is consecrated by the blood on the thumb in order to handle holy things. He can walk on holy places because his big toe is consecrated by blood. Uh, and then the power, power of uh, procreation is uh, signified by the circumcision. Um, in all of those two, I think you have, as uh, uh, 
you and I both have discussed in different contexts, the circumcision is a removal of the flesh. It's a removal of uh, the old. And you have all that, that imagery going on as well with the, uh, the, horns of the, the horns of the person. You know, his blood on the ear means an obstacle is being removed. His, his deafness is being renew, removed so they can be attentive to the word of the Lord. Uh, there's some kind of obstacle, some kind of, uh, his hand is being consecrated from flesh to spirit or, uh, uh, or some other, we might come up with a better way of saying that, but his hands are being consecrated to the Lord. His hands are no longer to be devoted to fleshly pursuits, but they're to be devoted to uh, serving in the tabernacle and so, and so on. So yeah, I definitely have that correlation. I haven't thought about it so much in the opposite direction and think about how the, the altar is with its blood on the four horns, um, how that suggests a kind of um, four-cornered circumcision of the altar. Um, do you have any thought? I haven't thought about it in that direction. Do you have any further thoughts about how that might illuminate the sin offering? Um, I'm sure it does, but it's not, again, it's not something I've given enough attention. Yeah. Uh, you have pointed out a number of times in our studies in Leviticus uh, the, the importance of the connection between animals and human beings that's built into the system, animals substituting for human beings in the different offerings. And this is the, this is the one where that comes in, into play most thoroughly because you have different animals that are offered for different, different kinds of human beings, different, different kind of different status of human beings. That was intended to be a lead-in Ah, for you to for sorry. you to for you to for you to expound on that point. <laughs> yes, the connections between the animals and the persons are really quite pronounced because you have the um, for the anointed priests there's a bull, and then for the whole of Israel there is a, a young bull, and then in the case of the leader of the people it's a goat, a male goat, and then a commoner it's a female goat or a female sheep which seems to suggest that the commoner is associated with the bride and um, bridal animal. And then there's also the bull is associated with Israel, considered as a priestly people, um, the son, but also with the priest as the representative of that people. And the leader is, within this picture, a goat. Um, looking back, we mentioned in the past, in Genesis chapter 15, there are the five animals of the sacrificial system that are separated by Abraham in, as he's given a vision by God. And in that case, it's uh, a heifer, a female goat, um, a male sheep, and then um, turtle dove and pigeon, which seems to suggest something about the position of Abraham and his family at that particular point in history. But now as it has priests and leaders of the people and elders and other ruling figures, it can be represented by a, a broader range of animals. Yeah, and this is anticipating the next episode of our um, studies in Leviticus, but um, interestingly, the missing animal in that sequence is the male ovine, the male sheep. You have a bull that's for a, uh, uh, for a, uh, priest, a male goat, a female sheep, birds, uh, but you don't have the male sheep. And that's, uh, that animal is uh, reserved, as it were, for the, 
trespass offering that we'll discuss in the next episode. Uh, and interestingly, that's the animal that we most naturally think about is the the one that represents the the uh, represents Jesus. It's the it's the animal we think about in connection with Passover, even though Passover could be either a lamb or a goat. Uh, but Jesus is regularly spoken of as the Lamb of God. Uh, he's the Lamb in the Book of Revelation. He's not the bull. That would be an entirely appropriate way to speak about Jesus because he is uh, he's representing all of the different offerings. But the the one that's highlighted is uh, is the lamb, which would interesting doesn't fit with the purification offering, but more with the trespass offering. Just to clarify what I'm not saying there, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't fulfill the sin offering. I think he does, and I think we have some pretty explicit New Testament evidence that that's the case. At the beginning of Romans eight, and in some sense a a climax, the beginning of the climax to the whole of the central section of Romans. I think Romans 5 through 8 is the central part of the, of the book. And then after this description of the anguish of a man, a fleshly man, confronted with God's law that you have in the second half of Romans 7, then Paul, and that ends with, uh, who will save me, from the save me free from the body of this death? Then Paul says, there is no condemnation with those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned to sin in the flesh. And the phrase there is perihamartia. It doesn't actually say an offering. It just says in sinful flesh for sin. But uh, various commentators have argued that that phrase perihamartia I don't have the ending right, I don't think, but on the on the noun there. Uh, but the the, uh, uh, the that phrase is, is used in other Jewish literature to describe sin offerings. That's why the New American Standard interpolates the word uh, offering, even though the, it's not in the Greek. So Jesus is comes in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, and in that sin offering, God condemns sin in the flesh. So that uh, that seems to be one passage where Jesus death is uh, compared to the sin offering. It fulfills the sin offering. It purifies once for all, uh, cleanses, and does all that the purification offering should do. The other place that is quite interesting is the reference in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 10, where the writer of Hebrews says, we have, we have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. That verse 11, Hebrews 13, 11, is the rule that we're given in Leviticus. If the blood goes in, the flesh has to go out. The blood goes into the holy place and put on the altar of incense. Uh, the internal organs and the fat are burned on the altar. The rest of the animal the edible parts of the animal don't go on the altar, and nobody eats them either. They go outside the camp, are burned outside the camp. They're not. They're not a soothing aroma. They're not. Uh, they're not bridal food for the Lord. Only the internal organs are considered uh, soothing aroma. So that the the animal is split up into two two sections: an altar part and then and an outside the camp part when the blood is brought into the into the holy place. And then verse twelve, Hebrews thirteen. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the camp, outside the gate. Hence, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So Jesus is um, sanctifying 
by his, his blood is brought not just into the holy place of the earthly tabernacle, but as Hebrews says, it's brought into the holy place of the heavenly tabernacle. And because the blood goes all the way into the sanctuary, his death takes place outside the gate. That same dynamic of in and out that you have in the sin offering is taking place in the, as Hebrews says, in the actual location of Jesus' death. Um, and it's because his blood is, his blood is going to be taken in uh, as a cleanse, cleansing for the heavenly things, not just for the earthly things. Uh, so that's clearly comparing the, uh, the death of Jesus to the sin offering, and in particular details, which is very, quite interesting. And then to uh, go back to the beginning of that uh, comment in, verse, in Hebrews 13.10, this is all about eating. We have a, an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Uh, if you're a priest and you're offering a sin offering, uh, the blood goes into the holy place, the flesh goes out of the camp, the internal organs go on the altar. If you're a priest, you don't eat any of that. The entire animal is consumed, whether on the altar or outside the camp. But we, Hebrews says, have a right to eat from that kind of sin offering. We eat from a sin offering whose blood has gone into the holy place and whose flesh has suffered outside the camp. Uh, we have a right to, to that most holy food that even the priests of the Old Testament couldn't eat from. I think that's got to be a reference to the, to the uh, supper, the Lord's table, as a fulfillment and, and a surpassing of the Old Testament sin offering. Uh, priests could eat the sin offering, the parts of the sin offering, if it was offered by a lay person. Uh, they could eat, uh, uh, it wasn't all consumed. The entire, the entire animal was not consumed at the altar or in a fire outside the camp. But if a, if a leader or a common person brings an animal, then the priest ends up eating a portion of that animal. And that's part of the priest's role as, bear, as a sin bearer for Israel. Um, but if he himself offers, or the whole community sins, and a purification offering is offered, then the priest doesn't eat anything. We do. We have this elevated position. We're not only in the position of the Aaronic priests, but we have uh, privileges that even the Aaronic priests didn't have. There's more on that theme in chapter 10 as well, with um, the statement of the complete forgiveness of the new covenant, that once that occurs, their sins and their lawless deeds are, will remember no more, that where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And then the danger of those who sin willfully after they've received the knowledge of the truth, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for them but just the fearful expectation of judgment. Mm, yeah. The, the purification offering sent is, uh, so those are several passages that show that Jesus is fulfilling it. And I think the step back and go back to something we said earlier, that is that the purification offering is about cleansing the house. You offer the purification offering in order to maintain the purity of the house so that the Lord remains in the house. Uh, and that would be the direction we'd want to think about the atonement in Christ, if we wanted to think about it in terms of the purification offering. Um, we'd want to think about how he, as Hebrews says, how he cleanses the heavenly sanctuary, how he cleanses the holy house of the church, um, and, um, and then how uh, the purification offering might lead into a theology of purification by confession. I think there's a connection between the purification offering and the confession of sin that we are exhorted to in the New Testament. Uh, first, first John speaks about 
confession as an act that, that cleanses us from sin. The God who is righteous and just uh, cleanses us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. So there's a, there's a connection between the purification offering and the confession. So we go through a, there's a kind of once for all cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, God preserves a, a clean and holy house on earth in the church. But then in the practical life of the church, there's still this need for continuous cleansing through confession. And that, of course, comes to its fullest expression on the Day of Atonement, which is a day where the sin offering and also an emphasis upon confession are very much foregrounded. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.